Good evening once again. Uh, tonight we'll be hearing from Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 15, from the New American Standard, if that's all right. Colossians 2, 6 through 15. Hear now God's holy word. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed, and overflowing with gratitude. See to it that there is no one who takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception in accordance with human tradition, in accordance with the elementary principles of the world, rather than in accordance with Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over every ruler and authority. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision performed without hands, in the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him up from the dead." And when you were dead in your wrongdoings in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our wrongdoings, having canceled the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray. O Lord Jesus Christ, grant that we may always rejoice in the free gifts that flow to us from your body. Grant that we may partake of your divine wisdom through your word tonight. And grant that our lives be marked by rejoicing in your unending love. Amen. Well, I still remember when my son took his first steps. Uh, parents in the room, I'm sure you also remember that moment for your children very well. Uh, it's one of those major milestones of human life. And why? Because walking is central to human life. Walking is how we move from one thing to another throughout the day. It's how we uh, go to the kitchen and get food to eat, move to the garden, or go out to the car, or go to the bedroom to go to sleep at the end of the day. Walking is the way we get from one place to another. And to those who experience pain while walking or tragically are no longer able to walk uh, at all, they probably appreciate it more than us because for most of human history, for most humans, walking has been sort of a given. It's one of those things we do without thinking about it, like breathing. And in our passage tonight, we see from the first verse how Paul uses this metaphor of walking to talk about the Christian life. As new creations, we are to move about through our new lives, walking in Christ. Because of the redeeming work of Jesus, especially his death on the cross, believers should live their lives in him alone. So tonight, as you can see on the outline, we'll first be looking at the call to Christians in verses 6 through 8. Second, in verses 9 through 10, we'll see the effects of Jesus' divinity. And third, and finally, we'll spend some time talking about the fulfillment of circumcision with verses 11 through 15. 
So we'll start with the call to Christians and really what amounts to the call of this whole epistle. This is the main uh, message Paul has, uh, the main call to action Paul has for this church in Colossae. So let's look again at verse 6. Paul says, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. And the therefore at the beginning of the verse points us back to what we talked about a couple weeks ago. Uh, Paul's desire, which he expressed in verse 28 of chapter 1, to present the Colossians, Jew and Gentile, mature in Christ. So with that desire in mind, Paul tells them that in the same way they received Christ, they are to walk in him. Now, when he says received, that's both an intellectual and a personal uh, commitment, isn't it? When you tell someone you've received Jesus Christ, you mean that you have believed the truth about Jesus Christ expressed in the gospel. But also, when you say that you've received Jesus, you mean that you've trusted in him personally uh, as your Lord and as your Savior, as the one who accomplished uh, and won eternal life for you. So when Paul says, as you have received, he's bringing up, he's reminding the Colossians of those doctrinal and those personal commitments that they have made. And notice, too, he doesn't just say Christ or Jesus or even Christ Jesus. He says Christ Jesus the Lord. So they received Jesus, the historical flesh and blood man born in Bethlehem. And they received that Jesus as the Christ, the one uh, who the Jews called the Messiah, who would fulfill all Old Testament type, shadow, prophecy as the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. And finally, they received Christ Jesus as Lord, which is essentially what Paul was breaking down in his poem that we talked about about a month ago. The divine, human, sovereign king over all things. So he's commending them for what they believe, for what they confess, and saying that's exactly where they need to be. And now, since they have received Jesus in that way, they need to continue to walk in him. Essentially, he's saying, since it's my goal to present all of you mature in Christ on the last day, what you need to do is walk in him. So he's encouraging them to continue to operate based on the same God-given faith that initially apprehended the benefits of Christ. And God will sustain that faith as they continue. So Paul's command for the Colossians to walk in Christ is sort of a a packed-in, summarized version of what he goes on to explain in the next few verses, starting with verse 7, which says this, Having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. So the first way Paul explains what it means to walk in Christ is to focus on the truth. The Colossians have been firmly rooted in Christ. They're now being built up in him and established in their faith. Like we saw with uh, Colossians 1.23, this is temple imagery. Rooted, built up, established. These are all architectural words. So he's saying that God has made believers. Notice all these verbs are passive, so it's God doing this. God has made believers part of the true spiritual temple which is Christ. So they've been built upon the only stable foundation that anyone's life can be built upon. They've been built upon Christ. And he's encouraging to live their lives based on the doctrine of Christ as opposed to the teaching of the Antichrist false teachers. The Colossians should do everything they can to increase in the knowledge of right doctrine, sound doctrine, 
so that they are wary of any teaching that promotes any other way of salvation. Only Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. So walk in Christ. Soak in the truths of the gospel. That's the call to all Christians. And all of that is topped with thanksgiving. Paul says here that the Colossians, as they walk in Christ, they will be overflowing with gratitude because God is the source of their faith, their inheritance, their salvation, and every other blessing you could think of. They have every reason, and we have every reason, to be thankful. So the first way to walk in Christ is to focus on the truth. And the second is closely connected. It's to not be led astray. This is what he's saying in verse 8. See to it that there is no one who takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception in accordance with human tradition, in accordance with the elementary principles of the world, rather than in accordance with Christ. Remember, Paul has already told them that they've been delivered from the domain of darkness, and now he's warning them to be wary of any person who comes and tries to take them back to that place. And how would someone accomplish that? Through philosophy and empty deception. It's sort of like fast food advertisements. You're driving down the highway, you see the billboard, McDonald's, Chick-fil-A, whatever. But the story is that these companies, they hire professional food designers, which is crazy that that's a job, to, uh, to make their sandwiches out of plastic and other highly inedible materials so that they look good for a camera. And that's basically to trick you into coming into their store because... You know that once you pull through the drive-thru and unwrap the paper, it's not going to look like it did on the television or the billboard. It's a completely different story. And this is similar to the false teaching. It might have sounded appealing to the Colossians. They may, the, they may have promised to meet some spiritual appetite that the Colossians had. But in reality, what the false teachers were teaching was empty deception. Their philosophy was worthless. Now, when Paul says philosophy, he's not meaning everything that we call philosophy today. Um, What he's talking about are teachings, worldviews, that don't line up with what God has revealed. So the term empty deception is basically saying that this false teaching, this philosophy that was facing the Colossians, was devoid of intellectual, moral, and spiritual value. It's completely worthless. And Paul lists the reasons why that philosophy is worthless. Number one, it's based on human tradition. Number two, it's based on the elementary principles of the world. And number three, it's not based on Christ. So first, the false teaching is in accordance with human tradition. So this Jewish mysticism, this particular philosophy Paul's talking about, it originated from the minds of sinful and fallen human beings. Now, the Christian philosophy... The Christian teaching has a drastically different origin. It originated from God, who specially revealed it to his prophets and his apostles and preserved that revelation through the work of his spirit and also throughout history, providentially. So, we see two different, fundamentally different origins here. Second, the Jewish mystical philosophy is empty deception because it's in accordance with the elementary principles of the world. Quick note, uh, if your Bible, your translation says elemental spirits, that's because this is one of those uh, phrases that there's been a lot of debate about. Um, All kinds of great scholars go, uh, you know, on either side of this. But I'd humbly submit to you that the translation with the best lexical 
uh, historical and contextual support is what's here in the NASB elementary principles. And so we know what we're talking about. A simple definition of these elementary principles of the world is essentially the works principle. Do this and live. And that works principle constantly confronts all human beings. In a special way, it confronted the Jews through the Mosaic law, but it confronts the rest of us through nature and through our consciences. So we've talked a lot about the goal of the Jewish mystics um, to have these spiritual ascents, these visions that take them up into heaven, result in special knowledge, and even for a select few being transformed into some kind of angelic spiritual being, which they would view as a salvation from the evil material world. So we've, we've touched on that quite a few times as we've gone through this epistle so far. But we haven't discussed as much the method that they prescribed for attaining what they would call salvation. And their method was essentially a strict obedience to the law of Moses combined with physical self-denial. So they would make sure they were keeping the whole law as they interpreted it. They would deprive themselves of sleep. They would starve themselves, and they would wait for their souls to be lifted up into the heavens. In other words, they were seeking salvation through their own works, through their own strength. So when we're talking about the elementary principles of the world, we're talking about precepts, rules, doctrines that promote a way of salvation that says you have to justify yourself before God. And every fallen person expects to find some way to do that, of making themselves righteous before God. That's our default mode as fallen people. And false teachers utilize that by saying that certain behaviors and practices will result in paradise or enlightenment or nirvana or whatever it is. But Paul shows us that there's no hope for salvation in keeping the law. It's impossible, even if it's the right law. Even if it's the moral law of the one true God, you can't keep it. Instead, God has made another way of salvation, namely through Christ, who kept the law for us. As Christians, Christ has delivered us from the curse of the law and from this present evil age. In other words, he's delivered us from the elementary principles of the world and from the world to which those principles belong. Our true citizenship is in heaven in the kingdom of God's beloved son. And that beloved son is what Paul says the false teachers were missing. That's the last thing. Paul says at the end of verse 8, the most damning thing about their philosophy was that it was not according to Christ. And why does that make such a difference? Because Christ is the only place where salvation can be found. He's the only one who could keep and has kept God's law. As one writer put it, any teaching that in any way detracts from Christ's exclusive role is by definition both wrong and ineffective. So the Jewish mystical teachers were saying that if certain laws were kept, certain practices were done, and certain things that God had given as common blessings to us were denied, then you could achieve true spiritual fulfillment. But Paul is showing us you cannot add to Christ without taking away his exclusive role in salvation. And now, starting with verse 9, Paul turns to focus on the exclusivity of Christ. He starts in verse 9 by restating the divinity of Christ. In him, all the fullness of deity dwells. And this verse sounds familiar to us because it's almost exactly the same wording as verse 19 of chapter 1. 
In that verse, we learn that Christ is the fulfillment of the temple. He is the true holy of holies. And he's identified so closely with the divine presence of God that the only conclusion you can draw is that he is fully God himself. So Jesus is divine, but he's also in bodily form. This is what we confess this morning and so frequently in the Nicene Creed. We say that Christ is very God of very God, being of one substance with the Father, and also that he was incarnate by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He truly is God in flesh. Next, in verse 10, Paul begins to list some of the implications of the fact that Jesus is God in flesh. In him you have been made complete, and he is the head over every ruler and authority. So the first effect is that believers have been made complete through their union with Christ. Believers have already begun to experience the effects of being filled with the fullness of Christ's presence through the Holy Spirit who's been poured out on them. So Paul wants the Colossian church to understand that they enjoy an indestructible and permanent spiritual union with Christ, which began from the first moment they believed and will be consummated when Jesus returns. The second effect of Christ's deity is that he is the head over every ruler and authority. Now, those two words could either refer to human rulers or to spiritual beings. Um, And, you know, either is true. Christ is the Lord over human rulers and spiritual beings. But considering the false teacher's preoccupation with witnessing the activity of angels in heaven, Paul's probably focusing on the fact that Jesus is the king of his angels. His point is that Christ is greater than the angels. Why seek the creature when you could seek the creator? That's what the false teachers were doing. It was part of their empty and deceptive philosophy. And the Colossians should ignore that because Jesus is greater. He is divine and he is the king over all angels. Verse 11 begins to highlight the third implication of Christ's exclusive role in redemption. So let's move now to our final point, circumcision fulfilled. Now, why is this particular issue brought up? And with what I've said already about the method of the Jewish mystical teachers, you may have a guess. They would have taught that one prerequisite for what they would call salvation, for making these spiritual ascents into heaven, would be physical circumcision in accordance with the Mosaic law. But in our passage, Paul is saying that the Old Testament practice of circumcision, where a piece of flesh was cut off, always pointed ahead to the redemptive reality of Christ being cut off, On the cross. So let's look at Paul's teaching on this subject, starting with verse 11, which says this And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision performed without hands, in the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So, first, what does it mean that believers were circumcised in Christ? Well, to put it simply, it refers to location rather than being physically circumcised in the physical temple, Christians are spiritually circumcised in the spiritual temple, which is Christ himself. And that circumcision was performed without hands, meaning without physical hands. It was performed by the Holy Spirit who circumcises the hearts of those who believe. And how is that removal of the body of flesh made possible? It's made possible by the circumcision of Christ. Paul is talking about Christ's crucifixion as a circumcision. 
Just like faithless Israel was cut off from God's presence because of her disobedience, Jesus, the true and faithful Israel, was cut off from God's presence in order that God's elect could return from their exile under sin and under death. But it doesn't end there. Not only were Christians spiritually circumcised, they were also buried with Christ in baptism. Now we're on to verse 12, and Paul switches from the rite of circumcision to baptism. And it's important to note here that Paul is using these literal physical processes of circumcision and baptism to point beyond themselves to the spiritual work that Jesus does and that the Holy Spirit does. So we see that there's a close connection between the sign, circumcision or baptism, and the thing signified, spiritual circumcision or spiritual baptism. And he's saying in verse 12 that um, for the believer, their baptism into Christ means that they're baptized into his death. And for this language to make sense, we have to recognize that baptism functions as a covenant judgment. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that, like the waters of the flood in Genesis 9, the waters of baptism can have two possible results. If you think back to the flood, while those on the ark were saved through the flood waters, they were kept safe, all those outside the ark perished in those very same waters. This is what Peter is getting at in 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22. Through God's judgment... Baptism separates the godly from the ungodly. So with this idea of baptism as covenant judgment, we can understand the language of Colossians 2.12. When Christ was crucified, he experienced God's judgment. That's what he was saying uh, to James and John in Mark 10.38. Do you know what you're asking? You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I drink? Or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? He was talking about his death on the cross. On the cross, Jesus was judged guilty and endured the wrath of God for the punishment of the sins of his people. In that way, those who believe in him have been baptized into his death. In a very real way, his crucifixion has become their crucifixion. Yet we know that Jesus kept God's law perfectly. He died an innocent man. Therefore, God raised him from the dead. And because Christians have had Christ's righteousness credited to them, they also are raised from spiritual death to spiritual life, just as Christ was raised from, excuse me, just as Christ was raised from the grave. So they are now enabled to walk in Christ. But remember that baptism is a double-edged sword. It only represents purification and new creation to those who believe, who have faith in Christ. For those who are baptized but never trust in Christ for their salvation, the waters of baptism represent God's wrath being poured out on them. So let's tie all these strands together and wrap up our discussion of circumcision and baptism. To put it briefly... The fulfillment of the physical act of circumcision is the person and work of Jesus Christ. Every time a Jewish baby boy was circumcised, it reminded the Israelites of God's promise in Genesis 3 that a descendant, a physical descendant of Eve, the seed of Abraham, would one day accomplish redemption. 
And that promise was fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who was cut off or circumcised in the place of all of God's people. Now in the new covenant, God's people aren't circumcised, they're baptized. But that baptism can either be a blessing or a curse. The same was true for circumcision. To uh, reappropriate Paul's language in Romans 2, baptism can become unbaptism just as circumcision could become uncircumcision. Thus we see why Paul is able to closely link these two rites here in these verses. Circumcision was a bloody covenant judgment fulfilled in the death of Christ. And that death led to the Holy Spirit circumcising the hearts of those who believe. Similarly, Christ's crucifixion is also said to be a baptism judgment, both by himself and by Paul here. And because of his baptism on the cross, his people can receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit and walk in newness of life. All in all, Paul is telling the Colossian Christians that they have been raised from spiritual death to spiritual life. And all of that points further to two things. First, uh, look at verse 13. And when you were dead in your wrongdoings and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our wrongdoings. And the first part of this verse makes the second part stronger. It's almost as if Paul was saying, though you were dead, he made you alive. The phrase, in your wrongdoings and the uncircumcision of your flesh, represents the sinful state of unbelief. It reminds us of Paul's statement in Colossians 1.21 that we were alienated from God and we were hostile in mind. Before he intervened, we were ruled by sin quite happily. But now, through spiritual circumcision and baptism, God has made us alive together with him, having forgiven us all our wrongdoings. He's regenerated us and our sins are no longer counted against us. Verse 14 goes on to make this forgiveness even clearer and tells us the second thing that the circumcision of Christ means for his people. God made us alive having canceled the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way having nailed it to the cross. The word translated certificate of debt seems to be Paul's uh, figurative imagery of this document kept in heaven with every person's sins listed out. What a dreadful thought. But it's that document that he says that's been nailed to the cross. Paul is communicating to the Christians in Colossae. They do not have to continue living as if they are under the wrath of God, under the condemnation of his law. Jesus paid it all on the cross. The document that proved that they deserved divine wrath rather than divine blessing, has been put out of the way. It's been nailed to the cross. Therefore, the punishment due to every believer was poured out on Jesus. So if you're a Christian, you look forward to Judgment Day. You have nothing to fear on Judgment Day because all of the wrath of God, which was due to you, was poured out on the cross on Jesus. Your sins have been taken care of once and for all. Finally, now we come to verse 15 and we see another effect of Jesus' baptism judgment, of his crucifixion. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. First, we see that evil spirits, which is what Paul means in this case by rulers and authorities, 
The demons have lost one of their primary weapons, the certificate of debt which was nailed to the cross. Think about this. Satan and his minions can no longer point to that document and say, see, you are guilty. God couldn't love you. Look at all the ways that you've let him down, that you've broken his law. You're filthy. You deserve to be outcast. How could you expect to be brought into eternal communion with God? They could point to that list and say you're guilty, but now that record is gone. It's been nailed to the cross, and they cannot use it against us. Second, we see that after defeating his enemies, God made a public display of them. Paul's referring to this Roman custom of taking away a defeated army's weapons and armor and marching them through the city in sort of a defeat parade, at least for that army. In the same way, the spiritual enemies of God were put to shame in their defeat. We are not the ones who have to feel ashamed anymore. It's Satan and his demons who are put to shame. Third, we see that God has won the victory through Christ and the cross. From a worldly perspective, Jesus was an unlikely hero. And the cross was the most unlikely path to success. But from a heavenly perspective, the cross of Christ is exactly what was needed to defeat evil, forgive sins, and save God's people. So tonight, we've seen the call to Christians. As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, continue to walk in him. Continue to live based on the same God-given faith that brought you into right relationship with him. Focus on the truth of Christ and his gospel. Avoid false teaching that tries to tell you that you have to work to justify yourself. Second, we've seen the effects of Jesus' divinity. Believers are made complete in Christ through their union with him. He is the king over all angels. And Christians have received spiritual circumcision through the circumcision of Christ on the cross, which was our third point. As Christ bled under God's judgment on the cross, he fulfilled the shadow of physical circumcision, making a way for his people's hearts to be circumcised. In the same way, Paul says, he received the covenant judgment of baptism so that his people could receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit and walk in newness of life so that they could really, truly walk in Christ. That's what water baptism preaches to those who have faith in the exclusive salvific accomplishments of Jesus Christ. So in seeking to apply this passage to us, I'd like to go back to the central command of verse 6, walk in Christ. Brothers and sisters, if the significance of Christ's death and resurrection grabs a hold of us, as it should, the assurance and the rest and the comfort of his words, it is finished, will banish our worries. But if we fail to understand the gospel, we'll constantly live in a state of anxiety, resorting to empty deceptions, to empty philosophies, the elementary principles of the world to try to improve our standing with God. There'll be an endless struggle. But as believers, our foundation is Christ and we are united to him. And for those who are founded upon and united to Christ, we will not fall for the attractive deceptions of false teachers who come preaching the deadly poison of works-based salvation or works-based blessing. Brothers and sisters, we must rest upon our foundation 
upon Christ and his finished work. As we learn more about Christ Jesus the Lord, the one who has saved us, reconciled us to the Father, made a way for us to inherit a heavenly, unshakable reward. As we learn more about him, we love him more. And as we love him more, the only response we can have is to be overflowing with gratitude. Now I'll close now with a prayer from a song that I think is quite fitting for this passage. So hear these words, take them in, and let them be the prayer of your own heart tonight. Let's pray. Lord of glory, you have bought us with your lifeblood as the price, never grudging for the lost ones that tremendous sacrifice, and with that have freely given blessings countless as the sand to the unthankful and the evil with your own unsparing hand. Grant us hearts, dear Lord, to give you gladly, freely of your own. With the sunshine of your goodness, melt our thankless hearts of stone. Till our cold and selfish natures, warmed by you, at length believe that more happy and more blessed it is to give than to receive. Lord of glory, you have bought us with your lifeblood as the price, never grudging for the lost ones that tremendous sacrifice. Give us faith to trust you boldly, hope to stay our souls on you. But, O best of all your graces, with your love, our love renew. Amen.